Regular Hours, episode 165 for June 1st, 2021. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Hessenflow. And I'm Pam Bedore. And we are in our next book, our book for the month of June, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, The Solutions We Have and the Breakthroughs that We Need by Bill Gates. This was published three months ago in February of 2021. Chip, this is your book. You've brought us a climate change book. Tell us all about it. Well, we just read two books that touched on climate change, and I felt I would have been better prepared by having a book that kind of outlined some of the, the thought process where we are today and then some of the current thoughts on how to potentially solve this. So Bill Gates is a you know, well-known thinker, I would say, in our time, certainly the founder of Microsoft, and eventually he left and formed the Gates Foundation. And this was his initiative even though it's not the focus of the Gates Foundation. Well, so this is the third book that we're reading in a row about climate crisis. And so I was really curious what you guys thought about sort of the pros and cons of reading fiction versus nonfiction. So we've read three really, really different kinds of books with a completely science fiction book about climate crisis with uh, the calculating stars. And then a fiction book that had a decent amount of nonfiction in it with Kim Stanley Robinson's The Ministry for the Future, and now this straight-up nonfiction. So as we look at this crisis from three different angles, what do you guys think? I like science fiction. I'd like to state for the record, I like science fiction. I read a lot of science fiction books, and this is not a science fiction book, and it's written by a computer programmer, and computer programmers are not the most uh, prolific uh, verb users, and um, uh, this is a nonfiction book, Chip. This is written by a CEO who knows how to organize his thoughts and knows how to make a case or a presentation on this. And I think he's doing a pretty good job at, at that. So you could say it's dry, but at some point you have to get down to what is, you know, you have to get into some, you know, a process that can be followed. A science fiction book may be able to kind of give you an idea of some thoughts and how to do stuff. But at some point you got to get individuals in there that can kind of, kind of set up today's reality in, in, and what the real challenges are. And I think Gates, I think Gates does a really good job so far um, at outlining this. Um, I, I, I could definitely sit in a meeting on this and, and, and understand what's going on. And once again, understand what the cost is. I mean, what, what we're really looking for. He, he said what the goal is. The goal is net zero by 2050, which is incredible. And what an incredibly ambitious uh, goal. And I find it interesting that in the introduction, he is speaking to this feeling of why are we listening to Bill Gates? Why is he the authority on climate change here? He's not a climate change scientist, but he has that ability to take a large, very broad topic like this and to break it down into its pieces. He's not an authority, though. I mean, he, he basically, he's... Bill Gates' strength is delegating, and basically, stand. He he's got the soapbox. He got he's got the ability to reach a large group of people, where someone else who maybe have more credentials just does not have that ability to do it. The project that he had been working on before this was 
solving the big problem of disease on Earth. The idea of this, this massive undertaking and the climate change is a huge, massive undertaking. He tells us in the introduction that his focus changed from fighting disease to fighting climate change because maybe, just maybe, climate change is a part of that fight against the diseases that he was trying to eliminate. Did the Gates Foundation change their focus? I thought this was kind of a side thing for him. The way that he put it in the introduction was that he changed his focus. I don't know that the foundation has changed its yeah, focus. It's one of you know one of his interests, and, and certainly, if you had the resources he had and the time he has to to be able to, to discuss the big issues and the ability to be able to actually request either to to uh, the presence or or, or uh, groups of people that have either the authority or the ability to make change, he he, he certainly has all of, of those at his disposal. And it just seems that that this this when I said this passing interest that he had in climate change uh, became much more active as he started delving into the leading thinkers of the time on on this issue and accepting some of the 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 truth that that they were presenting. Well, and I think that the Gates Foundation has, you know, in a kind of over the past several years, been really interested in thinking about disease on the global scale and then uh, focusing on education in America. So that's been their two big portfolios. And as Gates tells us in the intro to this book, the motto of the foundation is everyone deserves the chance to live a healthy and productive life. So the foundation is really based on a model of equity and global equity for people around the world. And certainly I think we have reached a point where you can no longer ignore the climate crisis. If you're interested in equity, you you can't ignore the fact that the climate crisis is going to affect the very poorest people long before it will impact those of us who are white collar workers in the United States like us. So, I mean, I think that it, it would be almost crazy for him not to be thinking about the crisis, given the focus of the, the Gates Foundation. So that gives him a certain authority. But I kind of want to go back to this question of fiction versus nonfiction, because I think I love that you guys have such completely opposite approaches to this. And I think I'm probably somewhere in the middle between you two, which is that I, I really read a lot of nonfiction as well as a ton of science fiction. So all words are, are words that I'm interested in reading practically. So this to me is a very interesting read. I guess I wonder, Chip, I'll ask you this question. Do you think it's reductive at all in the way that it says, okay, we have this big problem. We can absolutely, like, if we can just apply math to it and we can solve it. Like, do you think that it's leaving out the stories that really excite people like Steve and me, then and then maybe activate. People. Maybe it's not for to get, tell the story. This is much more of to outline what the issue is, as a CEO would, and then sort of just help us think about some of the, the challenges of it. I, I don't. The stories are to someone else. This is this is what I kind of needed going into the first book. Is much more mm-hmm. of a foundation of what we're dealing with. And what the time frame that we're looking I mean, what what and you know once again we have to think of gates as a a well-read person as a person who has certainly thought about the issues he may, he may not be the the, the um 
leading authority of it, but certainly a person who's who's thought about some of these. And you're not going to hear this from a politician right now. I mean, if Biden would come out tomorrow and say 2050, it's going to be, it would come across as very political. I don't think this book is coming across very political at all. And I think that so far, at least in the introduction, Gates really outlines um, some of the, the, the challenges. I mean, what do we have? We have humans existing for a long period of time who are subsistence, you know, famine away from death, starvation. And then we sort of have this magic period that comes. And we're living in it right now where, I mean, people have homes and people have cars and, and people have air conditioning and uh, many people have food. And what we're seeing is everyone across the world, I mean, is rising with wealth. But what we can't do is tell people in Africa and tell people in India and in China that they can't have the things that the West has. has. So we have to figure out a way to kind of lift up the poorest part of the world, but also figure out a way to rethink how we have industrialized so that we can um, get to this ultimately net carbon. Um, I think he kind of gives away some of the solutions in this. I'm, I'm going to wait a little bit uh, uh, revealing those, but certainly um, we have to rethink sort of how we're using energy. And we, can, we what we can't do is take everybody back to subsistence living. That's just not uh, acceptable either. So I actually thought that the intro of this, the intro to this book really read like, you know, Bill Gates had recently, you know, read something about ethos, logos, pathos. So which you've run into in your college philosophy or maybe first year English classes. So, um, you know, logos is logic, pathos is emotion, and ethos is credibility. So like establishing your own credibility. And so I found that in the in the introduction section, uh, he actually does this big humble brag. And I'll admit, I'm not a big fan of the humble, humble brag, but a lot of people love it. And so it's a way to establish a certain ethos. So Gates says, listen, guys, I'm super rich. I love technology. And I myself have a huge carbon footprint. He even says, I took a private plane to get to the conference on climate change. So he starts out with this, you know, you might think I'm the wrong person because I have all of these, you know, things that people value, uh, that a lot of people in society value, wealth, influence, technology, and a huge carbon footprint. And so nonetheless, I think that I am uh, qualified to write this book. And so he's a big uh, he's a big counter-argument rebuttal guy. Like this feels like as you're reading this, you like, this is a guy who did debate club and you can feel that, right? Then so, um, so yeah, so I was just curious what you guys thought about that sort of rhetorical approach of just like embracing it. You know, he says, the world is full of rich guys with opinions of what other people should do. And I am one. Here's what I think we should do. You guys like that as a rhetorical approach? Or I have no problem with it. Uh, part of the, the immediate shot to him would be, how dare you come to talk to us about climate change with your private jet and your, your, your homes that use more electricity? So he's got to address that very quickly. And 
It's the first thing that I thought of when I thought of a Bill Gates climate change book. The first thing I thought of was he is not an expert in this field. He is not an authority. He needs to establish who he is in this introduction. And I think he did a great job with this humble brag. I think he said, I understand why you would be skeptical about Bill Gates the persona, writing a book about climate change. Let me explain why I think you should listen to what I have to say. Well, first of all, once again, he's continuously going to the authorities or leading thinkers of the time. He's being able to introduce those two to uh, the audience where those leading authorities would have no credibility with you. You wouldn't know who they are. Mm -hmm. And so he's had the ability to kind of process it and get create his narrative. And I think he had to to do this initially. I actually thought that, um, yeah, I thought that he did a, a pretty good job. I almost felt like, of course, Bill Gates is CEO of my, was the CEO of Microsoft. And that's his first reason for being a major public figure. But I mean, I've listened to his TED Talks and I've also listened to lots of interviews with Melinda Gates. And I think the Gates Foundation has done absolutely incredible work. And although he mentioned the Gates Foundation, in the intro, I felt like he could have gone even more deeply into that because to me, that's what's really persuasive for me is exactly how much that foundation has accomplished in Sub-Saharan Africa. That's what I think is really, really impressive. And it's also the reason that I might look to Bill Gates for information about climate crisis is because of economic migrants who are going to be created by the climate crisis. So it was funny how I thought like, I did think he did a good job, but I could almost see an even stronger rebuttal pulling on the work of the foundation. So I was a little bit surprised that he didn't go even more deeply into that, but absolutely agree. He had to do that. And I thought did it quite well. I was also okay when we moved from the Bill Gates narrator to the Will Wheaton uh, narrator in the, in the audio book. I do think it is nice for for writers to read their own like personal preface. So I thought that was well done. I am really liking the audiobook approach to this one, by Good. the way. Yeah, we need an actor. That's right. Yeah. We need an actor, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> now, Steve, I bet you how many numbers are in this book. Yeah, um, after the introduction, <laughs> my notes kind of fell off, didn't they? Because, yes, the the beginning, the, the introduction, the idea that we have this 51 billion tons of carbon dioxide that are produced every year, and we need to reduce from 51 billion tons to zero. And the quote, this sounds difficult because it will be. That was intriguing to me. The idea of we have to reduce from 51 billion to zero those numbers went in my head just fine the then he really hammered into some of the data in the beginning of this and, and i think you have to i think that's the only way that you can write this book is to go here's where we're at it's math and here's what we can do about it this is not impossible math i mean he, he asked you to basically use the 51 billion as your number that you have. And anytime someone says, we can you know, reduce carbon emissions by whatever, it doesn't give you a real idea of what mm -hmm. that really means. Is it big? Is it not big? There's just no way of, of truly, in, in a human mind, to truly grasp that. And so he, he 
he did exactly. You need to do it as a percentage of that 51 billion. And all of a sudden you've got yourself at least a way that you could read articles and then come back and you can kind of figure it out so that you have at least something you can measure. Because, I mean, how many things get promoted that, you know, they throw out numbers, but there's just no, there's no context for it. Is that a big number? Is it a small number? How difficult is it? I don't know. And that did, I mean, I, I think he did a good job also breaking down and sort of how to visualize in your mind how, how to look at these numbers too. Yeah, and I liked when he said like, so gigatons, right? So we could call it just 51 gigatons, but that doesn't mean anything, right? <laughs> so so I, I did like that. Now, there were two, I thought we might go through like the numbers that mattered the most to each of us. And so I picked my two. One of them is the idea of energy poverty that about 1 billion people in the world do not have reliable access to electricity, which is one in eight, right? And that's something that, of course, we in the West do not spend enough time thinking about. And I think that's just a really, really important piece of this puzzle as we think of the climate crisis, is that we have to solve the climate crisis at the same time as we solve that problem of energy poverty. And I completely agree with Gates on this. The other number that really struck me is one that I have been thinking about nonstop for the past year. And you, you'll probably recall this because I think we might have spoken about it in June of last year, three months into the pandemic, after the first big lockdown, people were thinking, including myself, oh my goodness, we're going to reduce our greenhouse gases by so much because no one's traveling. I'm not even leaving my house. And then the reduction was only 5%. And I remember the day three months in when that when that data came out and I listened to the piece on NPR and I was like, how is that possible? I was picturing at least 25 percent minimum. And actually, and so are a lot of scientists who know a heck of a lot more about this than I do. And it was only five percent. And it really speaks to the difficulty of the problem and the fact that this problem is not going to be solved by you and me in our houses, you know, keeping the lights off, driving a little bit less, whatever. Mm -hmm. Just, it just speaks to the enormity of the problem. And I thought that was really, really um, an important thing for him to bring up too, because I've been thinking about it nonstop. Yeah. I, again, I feel not empowered by some of this data because as an individual, I can only do so much and I can do my part. I have to do my part. And if we all do our part, then we can do something. But a 5% reduction when the, the world shut down, 5% is a drop in the barrel and it all went right back up. And when we geared back up a few weeks later after that data came out. So that was, that is a, a frustrating fact that is presented. Well, here. He, he, he mentions that as frustration because the issue is challenging. This is not an easy fix. We, mm-hmm. we, we're going to go through some, some other parts of the data that, basically talk a little bit about this, but this is, it's daunting. And the here's, here's what I got from it. We need to get to zero. So what does that mean? How is this going to work out? Well, the book's going to kind of outline some of the things we could do, but what that still means is that trucks are going to bring, bring bringing food into Chicago. 
and they're going to be using some form of electricity. Mm-hmm. So we're not, we can't ask people not to eat. We can't ask people not to enjoy their life, but we're going to have to figure out ways to modify how we can do some stuff. And listen, um, when, when things are invented, they're not always the most efficient and, um, we've got the ability to do it. I, what blows me away is that we have houses being built around the nation right now. I'm not sure if, if, green was the first thought that they had or the carbon footprint or the design of the areas. Um, you can see developments go up and we're still, once again, creating places where people can't walk to the grocery store and they, they're forced to use automobiles to move around and they don't have paths that really make it easy to get to the doctor or to some of the other areas. The United States has got some real challenges. And, you know, I was thinking about all the growth that's going on in China right now and all the roads they're putting in. You know, they're basically building stuff for old technology. They're building an infrastructure for a technology that may have to change. We might call that an inconvenient truth. Yeah, I don't think that one was as uh, effective. Sorry, I tried. I was trying. I was trying to get that one in there. I forced that humor into there. Which numbers really impacted you guys? For me, the the idea that the electricity production accounts for about twenty seven percent of this fifty one billion tons that was that was striking to me because we think about energy in terms of electricity so often that. Often when we talk about change in the climate crisis, we talk only about electricity. And the fact that electricity is about a quarter of the energy needed for everything struck me as interesting. Okay, and let me clarify this. You're talking about energy production, correct? The energy that is used to run our planet... 27% of it is electricity. The rest of it is all sorts of other things that we do, like automobiles, like uh, production, uh, manufacturing, that is something that is energy other than electricity. That was striking to me. And I thought that was really useful, the way that he divides our activities, the emissions creating activities into five categories, making things, manufacturing, growing things, farming, getting around, transportation, plugging in, which is your 27%, and then heating, cooling. And I thought that was actually just a sort of, it's, this is the book that Kim Stanley Robinson thinks you've already read, but that we actually hadn't read beforehand. The one that just does the just basic, like, here are the pieces that we need to think about. So it's super helpful in that way. And I love the part where he was explaining about how, the production of concrete is such a drag on all of the numbers because there's so much that goes into the production of concrete, but we don't want to eliminate concrete. That's that's an important building block, literally, of our society. And that's something that I never think about, right? Like, I always think about electricity because I interact with it, right. but concrete, you don't notice. And I, I like that too. Well, think about 3D printing a home. What are you going to print that home with? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you're thinking concrete. And so if that is one of a, a major pollutant, then, you know, 
how do we, how do we, how do we address this? So, I mean, these are, yes, questions. Keep asking more questions, more questions. And the idea of the affordability of fossil fuels at this point in history, the idea that it's so inexpensive to use fossil fuels that it doesn't make sense not to use fossil fuels, despite the fact that we understand how detrimental that is to the environment. Well, fossil fuels are not just the engine for the everyday life. They're also national defense type of uh, thoughts. So, you know, the United States as a country, we have over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years learned to pull oil from sand. And many of the, the, uh, the storage facilities that were originally designed to import oil to make sure we have oil have become places to store U.S. made oil and also to export oil. So the United States is exporting now. So, I mean, you can see where it's, you know, we've got all these computing issues for something like fossil fuels, but yeah. I also really liked how clearly he explained the issue of Moore's law. So in computing, Moore's law is the notion that you can actually double your progress every, what is it, two years? It used to be two years, and it has accelerated so much that Moore's law actually is more like 18 months at this point. Oh, wow. And he explains how, because you're basically working with micro techs, you can actually make things smaller and smaller and smaller, but it doesn't work for transportation and it doesn't work for environmental technologies. And so sometimes people have, I think, this very optimistic sense, like, look at what we're doing with computers. We can just do that. We could create trees that process carbon so much more quickly and like we could we could have all these technological solutions that would make this that would basically remove this problem and he's like not exactly and that's where he does have a lot of authority that's where bill gates is the guy who 100 percent understands how quickly progress moves in his own industry and then can say it doesn't work the same way like this statistic that um the model t had 21 miles per gallon in like 1908 to 1927, and now 35 miles per gallon. 100 years, that's not very much progress. You can double. A lot more horsepower, though. A lot more horsepower. True. <laughs> and, 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 but that's not good for climate crisis. <laughs> and does that go back to the issue that we brought up with the uh, – Kim Stanley Robinson book, where the more capacity we have, the more usage we're going to have. We are not going to reduce or stay the same in usage. When we have more capacity, we're going to use it more. Right. And another math thing that I thought was really helpful was about temperatures. So as a Canadian, I always think in Celsius and then I have to like convert to Fahrenheit. What's the Celsius but- stuff? I've never heard of it. <laughs> Oh, it's it's very very rarely used. Jeff, just, in a, <laughs> just the rest of the world, world. right? So, just the rest of the world. <laughs> but but I think that when we talk about two degrees Celsius, it just doesn't sound like that much, right? I mean, I'm on the beach at twenty degrees. I'm on the beach at twenty two. I'm having a great time. What do I care about two degrees? It just doesn't sound like enough. And even when you turn it into three point eight Fahrenheit, it still doesn't seem like much. But I liked this stat, which I've never seen before, which is that the ice age was only six degrees colder than our temperatures today. 
Whoa, that's a great way to think about how these fairly small temperature changes um, make an impact. And Steve, I thought Calculating Stars did a great job in thinking about that too. When early on in that book, when Elma meets with the acting president and he's the secretary of agriculture and he's like, oh my gosh, one degree, but that will ruin so many crops, right? So I think it is important for us to have this sense like, these small changes are actually huge in their impacts. Right. The, the math of the crisis is startling. The, the idea of two degrees Celsius will change life, will, you know, raise oceans and, and heat up the gulf in a way that the storms will be that much more devastating when they hit the land. There's so many things that happen in that two degrees Celsius. So this book looks at those big issues and also at the, we're going to get started with this, how can today's work change the future? And one of the things he looks at is stock divestment. And Gates mentions that students have really activated for universities to go through their stock portfolios, their foundations, as well as their own operating budgets. And to actually look at what stocks they're supporting. And I remember this happened at UConn a few years ago and at many, many other universities. And he mentions that the Gates Foundation actually divested from fossil fuels in 2015. He doesn't really seem to think it's gonna make a huge difference. One thing that he didn't address, but that I think is really important is that this is an optics thing as much as a finance thing. And I sometimes worry and a lot of people do, that there's a danger in making people think that they're making a difference when they aren't. Like if you say, oh, I have a totally green portfolio, so I'm doing my part for climate change. And then you're like, so that's good. I'm done. Check it. I've mm -hmm. got off my list. And so I guess because so I completely agree with him that Sure, it makes sense to to divest from from these stocks just like to make the point. But don't think it makes a huge difference and you don't want it to be instead of doing other things i'm guilty of that i've got solar panels on my roof and i've got an electric car i i am guilty of of checking that check mark like i have done my part uh, there's certainly things that i do that are wasteful there's certainly things that i could change about my lifestyle and and the, for me the biggest part is is spreading the word like hey everybody we all need to think about these bigger issues and i think that that's the optics part that you're talking about here he says we at the foundation have divested from fossil fuels maybe everybody else should think about how they are moving finance in in the direction of helping the climate crisis? Well, the only thing I would say is every week you put your, your recycling out. It's incredibly expensive. Some of it can be recycled. Most of it can't. There's no market for most of it. And so right now, it, you know, nobody's buying it. So, you know, this is, this is something that is signaling that I'm, I, I care. Well, you know, if I'm the Gates Foundation, I've got the wealth that, that the Gates have. I can do things that maybe the average person can't do. Yeah, I really like that point, Chip, about like virtue signaling that doesn't really make a big impact. And yeah, I know when when you read those articles about how all of our carefully 
curated recycling is just getting buried in the recycling landfill instead of the regular landfill so that maybe one day people will like do something with all that plastic i mean but that's the optimistic viewpoint is that someday somebody (laughs) will need a pile of that kind of garbage and will know where it is that that's what you would do right If, if you knew that you needed it eventually you would put it somewhere where you would know where it was well on the grand part of this is those are fossil fuels. That's what plastic is. Mm-hmm. And so what we're doing is we're creating plastics that cannot be recycled to pay additional resources to have it picked up, sorted, put into a big block that there's no market for. This is, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's foolish, but, but you know, imagine you're the person who is the mayor or the trustees or whatever you're doing for your community who says, Hey, listen, um, this is really expensive. We can't do this. Well, what ends up happening? People are like, how dare you not recycle? They feel like they're doing something. And my, Mm -hmm. my point being is that these are types, these are design issues where you can sit down and you can think about, you know, who is responsible for the recycling of that? Maybe, maybe the, the, the company that's determining that this inexpensive petroleum product, maybe this is it. I, I, I've, just, I've been thinking, let me, let me back up. Let me kind of address this kind of a different way. In the old days, you would go and you would get your soft drink and it would be in a, uh, a bottle and you would take your bottle back to the store. You'd take your bottle home, you take your bottle to the store. And then it would be taken back to a plant and they would power wash it, clean it, and then they would fill it again. So it would be used over and over and over and over again. So is the use of water and soaps and stuff like that, is that cleaner than you know pulling oil from the ground, having this really, really inexpensive product that you can put stuff in that you're going to throw in the recycling bin that's not really recyclable? I mean, these are the type of things that are, you know, it's kind of, madness but we do them and i think it's kind of smart that like we know this stuff from our other reading gates didn't even go there right Right. he doesn't even mention what we were just talking about this is not in the book that's not his point he's like those are he's not saying whether those are good conversations to have or not i think they probably are but He's like, that's not the conversation he wants to be having. That's an adjacent conversation. Because I think he is trying to address the climate crisis with a lot of optimism. And he says, look, it's going to be super, super hard. But he wants to think about a future where we will be able to solve the climate crisis problem without having to give up very much. I think that's very, very important, is that he's trying to set up a solution that doesn't involve giving up all of those things that he talked about in the beginning, wealth, technology, huge carbon footprint. And so I think that's one of the ways that we'll have to, as we, as we go through this book, kind of think about like, is he rhetorically right? And I, I'm going to say right now, just having read the first three chapters, I suspect he is. And then is he factually right? I have no idea, but I look forward to finding out. And 
at the same time solving the energy poverty problem. He he is very optimistic. I I don't have the same optimism going into this story that he is giving us. The, rhetorically, I, I don't know that I agree with him that we can do it because it is so daunting. But maybe maybe by the end he'll make me a believer. Really? I mean, yeah. Steve, if the idea 20 years ago that education could be virtually free across the world, it's happening right now through through tech, right? So if you're some poor kid in, in Africa and you want to learn how to do something, I think there was some guy who built a helicopter in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there, there's, there's opportunities. I mean, once something is made or the design is put together, it's not that difficult to replicate it somewhere else. I'm sorry, I take that back. Because what the West has experienced over the last 200 years is pure magic um, compared to any time in history. How many cars do you have in your house? <laughs> how many How many televisions are available? How many roofs are in your communities? I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. When you go to the grocery store, there's food as much as you can... I mean, this is historically incredible, incredible wealth. In this country, but globally, the the amount of expansion of wealth is not universal. I, I, I disagree. There's Gates actually cites a book. Wealth across the world is, is rising, even, even in poor areas. And I think that Gates is actually someone that we can point to who has really helped with this issue. But I think it's funny, Chip, when you mention like an example of, you know, a child in Africa who can build a helicopter due to access to the Internet. And of course, I think we all love that story, but I don't know that that's a super common story. I think that there is still there's still a lot of work to do. Of course. In terms of equity. And the the issue of one billion people with energy poverty, I mean, that's a that's a staggeringly depressing number. The interesting thing for me is the number of people in Africa who have access to a smartphone is a larger number than the number of people in Africa who have access to electricity in their homes. And so that knowledge is getting there without that access to electricity. But boy, it would be a lot easier if they had electricity. Or they could immigrate someplace where there is electricity. Easier said than done, right? Yeah. I mean, which is something that Kim Stanley Robinson talked a lot about in, in his book. Now, one thing that I think Gates does really well is he just acknowledges right up front, this will be super, super hard. We don't have a climate consensus. And by that, he says, listen, obviously, scientists do have like a 97% consensus that climate crisis is anthropologically created. But after that very basic consensus, we don't have consensus on like the best way forward. Each new administration has a new agenda. And we've seen that how many times, right? When you think about even just the past two decades, you think about the year 2000 and the platforms that Gore v. Bush were bringing to the White House, those were radically different. And you write a radically different alternate history if Gore wins 2000, right? It's completely different. Some see things like health and education as more important. And Gates actually acknowledges that's something that the Gates Foundation, in fact, has put far more energy into. And this is a global issue. 
So it absolutely requires global cooperation. And he can point to plenty of things um, like the Paris Agreement, the Kyoto Protocol, et cetera, that have had global cooperation, but still have complexities. So I think he does a great job of laying out exactly what the problems are. Then it gets complicated, and we're about to see all of his arguments. To Gates, there's nothing wrong with using more energy as long as it's carbon-free. And he notes that he buys carbon offsets for his own huge energy consumption. And I think this is a place where, again, I don't have the background, but I know that the question of carbon offsets is a really controversial one. Does that really offset? Is that a very generous word for what you're doing, throwing money at a problem that can't necessarily be solved through financial? Tesla's um, made a whole uh, business model on it. Yeah, that is that is the entirety that we find out of Tesla's business model is they are selling those carbon offsets and that's where their financial arm is uh, <laughs> really, really not not doing well. But it's doing well. They're, they're financially, they're doing well until we don't have that offset. I think that's going to be a huge question as we read forward. And then there's the idea that we need to calculate the green premium for every technology. This notion of what does it cost right now to do something? What would it cost to do it cleanly? What's the difference between the two? Even if there's a possibility to do it cleanly. Exactly. So he ends this section, the first three chapters that we've read, with five tips as we move forward into the meat of the book. So I was curious which of these kind of seem most important to you guys and why. So the five tips are number one, always convert tons of emissions to the percentage of 51 billion tons. Keep that number in mind. Number two is that we need to find solutions to the activities that create emissions. And we've already talked about the five kinds. Three is how to think about kilowatts. So a kilowatt is a house, a gigawatt is a mid-sized city, and a megawatt is a big, rich country. Number four is consider how much space you're going to need to create any kind of uh, cleaner technology. And number five is to think about those green premiums. So let me ask you guys, of those five tips of thinking about climate crisis, which one kind of impacted you guys the most? I like the ones where it's just converted to um, how to... How to visualize it uh, to convert the tons of emissions into the 51 billion. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, I, I just to be blunt about it, this is a brilliant way to break down and make it digestible so that we can think about these issues. Yeah, the 51 billion tons was the was the impactful piece for me, was thinking of it in terms of this one number. What are we, and, and not the individual necessarily, we the world going to do about this one big number? Breaking it down into making things, growing things, getting around, plugging in, and heating and cooling was very important to me. Again, I have always been focused on electricity, and he is, is stating in this book that most people people are focused on generating power in terms of electricity, not all of the rest of these things that make up the energy usage on the planet. I also enjoy the, the kilowatt, gigawatt, megawatt, knowing it's a house, a mid-sized city, and to a, to a country. And the idea of being able to take that, because if you said to me, hey, Chip, how much electricity do you use on a monthly basis? I have no idea. 
Yeah. Same. And so if I don't have right. an idea, but you know, every month we're yeah. paying for it and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, how do you measure if you're doing okay or not? So I, now I've switched to, you know, LED lights versus, you know, incandescents. Oh, how wonderful. They last a lot longer. They sip electricity. What other things could I do? I mean, and, mm -hmm. and, and those are, if you get your bill every once in a while, they have like some things that you could do, but it doesn't really show like, all right. So if I, if I was going to build a house today, what could I do in the most efficient way possible that would be cost effective versus traditionally what we would normally build? And mm -hmm. what if we found out, I, I have no idea. What's the difference between a hundred, uh, kilowatts versus 50 kilowatts or 25 kilowatts. Maybe that would make a difference on how you, you do things. So those are things that individuals could do and they could feel like they're, they're, they're making that difference. And then you're dealing with, you know, a quarter or a half of what, what you're putting. And remember, Chip, that's something that was in the Kim Stanley Robinson book, right? Was actually giving people their electrical bill in kilowatt hours instead of dollars. And that was one of the improvements that I kind of, I love that idea because I know how much I pay per month in electricity, but you're right. I don't know how many kilowatt hours it is or how Wait, that. You don't have a spreadsheet? There's no spreadsheet in your, in your documents of all of your kilowatt hours? Because I have one for mine. Uh, this is a project that I've been doing with my middle schoolers for years where we take Ooh. and we look at your energy usage. How many light bulbs are on in your house right now? Let's imagine they're all 100 watt bulbs. Let's do the math and find out. Let's Okay, we can take it all the down to dollar signs but we can go one column over from that and see how many kilowatt hours your house is using and how you could then reduce it by i believe i used 10 percent in that assignment to reduce by 10 percent what would you have to unplug don't unplug the fridge that was that's my first lesson in that is the fridge <laughs> is kind of vital and it costs about 50 cents a day so let's leave the fridge plugged in but what else could you unplug Ooh, I love that, Steve. And by the way, for the guy who doesn't like numbers, I, that's a pretty numerical kind of assignment I, to give your students. I, I love it. I teach computer class and we do spreadsheets. <laughs> I do enjoy spreadsheets. Here's the weird thing about Steve. And, and by the weird thing, I mean on the list of the weird things. I don't like numbers, but I love spreadsheets. I love when the computer will do the math part for me that I learned early in life that I cannot do the math part in my head, but I can learn to make the machine do the work for me. And that's what I try to bring to my students. I love that. <laughs> now coming, so so those um, those are really great takeaways from these five tips. I actually really like the green premiums idea of that notion of how important it is to think about what is the cost difference because you have to make clean energy affordable. I mean, that's just the, the bottom line. For it to work, it has to be affordable or people will just put it off. So, so yeah, so I guess at the end of this introduction section, I feel like I'm looking forward to reading on. We have a lot, a lot to learn from this book. So what's our assignment for next week, Chip? Our assignment next week is we're going to read chapters four through six, and uh, we will get more into what, what Gates has assembled for us and figure out uh, what his solution will be eventually. I have, a, I have an Avengers in my head now. Gates assembled a, a group of, of 
information that we need to use to vanquish our enemy, which is carbon. 51, there's 51 billion tons of carbon that we need to eliminate. <laughs> there, I've made it into a story for myself. <laughs> Good job, Steve. <laughs> I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week. What do you think, Pam? Absolutely excited to come back. Good. We can fight it together. We can we can assemble the Avengers of the Carbon and and get it done. We would love for you to be a part of our Avengers group. What what are you thinking? What's what's your opinion on our three different views on the climate crisis? We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Send us an email, sandwiches at irregularhours at gmail.com. Our website is sandwiches at irregularhours.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Irregular Hours. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hasselbrock. And I'm Pam Madar. We'll see you in the future.